And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Please bow with me in prayer. O gracious Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning. I ask, Father, that you would use this weak and frail vessel to bring you glory and honor today. That you would lead and guide my, my every word, my every thought. Father, we ask for the Spirit's help this morning. For we know that we are powerless without you. Father, apply the, the word to our hearts this morning in a convicting way, in an encouraging way. And receive glory and honor for yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today we are beginning a, a, a mini-series on Acts chapter 4. In the beginning of the week, I was a little bit overzealous and thought I would cover the whole chapter from a 10,000-foot view, but I got four verses in, so there's that. But why are we interrupting the book of Ephesians? Well, this is something the Lord has placed upon my heart, and each and every day, I think the sense of urgency of this chapter of Acts is being seen. As you have heard me say before, our mission as a church is, what, the Great Commission? This is what God ha has called us to do. And Harry Reader in his book, Embers to Flame, where, where he's talking about how do you take a church that's, that's little smoldering embers and, and fan it into flame? One of the things he says is that the temperature gauge, or at least one of the temperature gauges of any local church is its commitment and understanding of the Great Commission. And I have pointed our attention before to our own Constitution, Article Number 2. We have a purpose statement. Why are we here? Which reads, the purpose of this church is to glorify the God of the Scriptures by maintaining and promoting His worship both individually and corporately, by evangelizing the lost, by building up His saints. Therefore, we are committed to proclaiming the glorious gospel of Christ's grace and mercy, making disciples of our Lord Jesus through all the world, teaching them to observe all that He has commanded, defending that faith which was once delivered to the saints. Now here's the thing, dear saints. We are living in a world, in a country, that is becoming increasingly hostile and resistant to Christianity. 
We are living in a country that each and every day is growing in its hatred for the things of God, for the true teachings of Christ. I'm arguing that as a church, we should be seeking to grow in our efforts to fulfill the Great Commission. That we should be seeking to, to increase our evangelism, to, to increase our disciple-making. But I am suggesting this within a context that is growing in hostility to those things. Do, do you see the point of tension there? So what happens when a group of Christians, with, with a fervent zeal to spread the gospel and disciple the nations, encounter a nation that is extremely hostile to being discipled and being evangelized. This causes a clash. Oftentimes when Paul would, would go and, and preach, as I've said before, it would either cause revival or riot. And oftentimes both. And I believe that what we see in chapter 4 here in Acts is this very thing. We, we see a church that is faithful in its duty to fulfill the Great Commission, and we see it in the context of, of persecution. And the Lord is actually sending revival here in this area when, when, the, when the apostles are, are preaching the word. But, but even in the midst of this revival that we see here, there's persecution. Why? Because even though multitudes are being saved, there are many who don't like what is happening. So they say, let us put this to an end. But this is a glorious thing that we are shown in this text. That the gospel cannot be stopped. Even in the midst of persecution. So we're going to spend several sermons looking at this chapter and, and learning how these believers were, were faithful to their duties. Even in the midst of persecution. Now, some of you may be saying, what kind of extreme Christianity is this man preaching? Dear friends, this is not extreme Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. A desire, a zeal to fulfill the Great Commission is biblical Christianity. Christianity, being at odds and clashing with the world around it, is biblical Christianity. You, you know what our problem is? That we've been at rest in Zion for too long. We, know, we no longer even know what it means to fight. And why is this? Because this is the case because men before us and women before us had a desire to fulfill the Great Commission and the cultural mandate. So, so we have for many generations now reaped the fruit of their labors. But now we are beginning to experience the negative fruit of several generations not doing that. So we're going to look at a couple of things in our text. First, today we're going to look at the annoyance of the gospel. And then we're going to look at the power of the gospel. So first, the annoyance. Look at me with verse number one. And as they were speaking to the people, 
the priest and the captain of the temple, when the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. In chapter 3, we see Peter and John entering into the temple. And there's a lame, a crippled beggar, begging for alms, which, which is usually money or goods. Peter's response to this is, silver and gold I, I have not, but, but what I do have I give to you. And he, he looked at this man and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. What a miracle. Later on in the text, in chapter 4, we learn that this man is 40 years old and has been crippled from birth. Guess what? He has no muscles in his legs. He can't just get up and walk. There's no camera, um, camera magic here that's showing some, some false healing taking place. This is an actual, legit miracle. This man's feet, his, his legs, his ankles are, are strengthened instantly. He doesn't go through 20 weeks of physical therapy. He's strengthened. He's, he's healed instantly. And he gets up and not only walks, which is another miracle. Because when somebody's legs are finally to the point where where they're strong enough to walk, when they haven't walked before or haven't done it for a long time, they need therapy to learn how to walk. But this man is not only walking, he's leaping. A, A notable miracle. And all the people are amazed because they know this man. They they know that this man has been lame from birth sitting outside of the temple, begging for alms, and, and they see him now walking into the temple, leaping with joy with Peter and John. And so naturally, the people are interested in Peter and John. And Peter does not take this as an opportunity to start a healing ministry and earn money. He simply points this man and all who are there to Jesus. He, he preaches the gospel to them, calling them to faith and repentance, calling them out for their sins. And this message he, he preaches, it, it's sharp, it, it's direct, it's offensive, but it's true. And so here's what Peter says. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You are more wicked than Pilate who wanted to release Jesus. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And in his name, by faith in his name, he, this man has been made strong whom you see 
and know. And the faith, he's pointing them to faith in Christ. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This had nothing to do with Peter and John. And now he calls them to repentance. He says, and, be, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus. Peter is preaching the gospel, calling out sins, calling people to faith and repentance and preaching the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And after this, we are told in chapter 4, verse 1, that they were speaking with the people. So perhaps after Peter preaches, people have questions and and they want to know things. So so Peter and John are speaking with them. And and when they are speaking, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them and they are greatly annoyed. Now who are these people annoyed by the preaching of the gospel? These people are the religious and the civil rulers. MacArthur notes that the Romans gave the the right to police the temple to the Jews. So so we know that there's the high priest, there's the Sadducees. These are the religious rulers, but they've also been given civil authority, delegated from Rome. So so these are, are the religious and civil authority of their day, and they are annoyed by the preaching of the gospel. And this Greek word annoyed means to be irked or greatly irritated. This word is used one other time that I know of in in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 18. And this is when this demon-possessed slave girl is following Paul around for days. Following him around for days. And she's saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she does this for days. And Paul and the others don't want this publicity. So they are annoyed. They're, they're irked at what she is doing. So, so Paul turns around and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the demon came out that very hour. So they are annoyed. They are irked. They are greatly irritated by the gospel being preached. This reminds me of our little experience at Tulip Time. Professing Christians. Could you take that gospel someplace else? It's annoying. You're proclaiming the truth. That's, that's quite irritating to me. Could you, could you take this someplace else? Dear friends, just because people find the gospel annoying does not mean that the gospel is wrong. It doesn't mean that we are presenting it wrong. It means that truth is being preached. When, when truth is preached, it becomes annoying to some. And we're going to learn why these leaders are are irritated at the preaching of the gospel. I'm going to give you at least three reasons for this. Number one, they were annoyed simply because Peter and John were teaching the people. Albert Barnes summarizes this point well. He says, they were offended that unlearned Galileans 
in no way connected with the priestly office and unauthorized by them should presume to set themselves up as religious teachers. They consider themselves to be the, the religious authority. And, le- and unless you were certified with, with their teaching, unless you had been trained in, in their rabbinical school, you were in no way, shape, or form fit to be teaching the multitude. So this is the first reason. And secondly, they were annoyed because Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees, one of the sects of Judaism at the time did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. MacArthur notes that they did not believe in the resurrection of the body or in any future rewards or punishments. They deny the existence of angels and the spirit world. Finally, they rejected predestination and the sovereignty of God, believing man to be the master of his own destiny. And he notes these theological liberals were the first to persecute the church. So these theological liberals, as MacArthur calls them, did not like the content of the gospel. Why? It contradicted their theology. It contradicted their views. For these men to be preaching the resurrection as absolute truth implies that believing, not believing in the resurrection is heresy. And if that's heresy, then, then essentially they're heretics. Do you see the, the implications there? This condemns the Sadducees as heretics. Because they are preaching something as absolute truth that the, that the Sadducees absolutely deny. Also, it was the Jewish leaders who, who put Christ to death. Which means that if if God raised him from the dead as the Messiah, they were wrong. What what are the implications of that? They have blood on their hands. Innocent blood. Not not only that, but but now their their morality, their their teaching, and their, their religious authority is being put into question. It's interesting how these implications work. And and I think we realize that in our culture, and this is why in our culture, we often avoid absolute truth. We we don't want to state anything too strongly because we understand the, the implications of something being stated strongly. We we don't say that homosexuality is sin. Why? Because that implies that a person practicing homosexuality is actually in sin. So we don't say that. We we don't say that that women can't be pastors, that it's wrong, that that it's sinful. Why? Because that becomes offensive to the person who feels that that's true. And by you stating that truth, absolutely, you, you are implying that people who are doing that are wrong. That they are in sin. We, we don't like to say that, that abortion is murder. Because the implication is that if a woman goes and commits abortion, she commits murder. And we are afraid of those implications of truth. We don't say there are only two genders. Because we don't want to offend people who identify as something else. Do you realize the implications of that? If we say there are only two genders... 
and I say that I'm something other than male or female, the implication is that I am a liar or a lunatic. Truth has implications. We, we don't say that we can't change genders because we don't want to offend men who, who feel like they are women trapped in men's bodies. We don't want to say that, that, that BLM is a, is a Marxist organization and that social justice is not biblical justice because, guess what? The implication is that those who are holding to these things are holding to unbiblical ideologies. That's too strong. Dear friends, we are getting to the point in our culture, thanks to critical theory, where we can't even correct women are any minority at all. Because we view everything as oppressed or oppressor. And we have this wretched intersectionality. So you are a victim and are oppressed in as far as you are not a white, heterosexual, Christian male. So if you're a woman, that's one intersect of oppression. If you're a black woman, two intersects. A black lesbian woman, three intersects of oppression. And for us to, to, to call out a woman or to call out a minority or homosexuality is to say that they have sin. And we can't say that because they believe that oppressed people are not sinners. All of the issues in their life is due to oppression, not to sin. Let, let me give you an example of this. Do you remember when Christ confronts the woman from Samaria at the well? He's talking to this woman and he tells her, go get your husband. What's her response? I don't have a husband. He said, that's right. You've had five husbands. And the one, the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus calls her out for her sin. She was an immoral woman living in sin. Now fast forward to today. And how would this be handled in most of our churches? Well, we won't mention that. I know you ha you've had five husbands, and I'm sure those men were very oppressive. I'm sure you had a reason for that. I'm sure they were abusive, and I'm not trying to, to make light of actual abuse. But we live in a culture where, where if you belong to the oppressed category, you can claim abuse as whatever you want it to be. And so we would say to this woman, I'm not going to say to you that the man you're with right now is not your husband. Why? Because that would be oppressive. Dear friends, I'm not making this up. There are literally churches right now where, where if somebody corrects somebody who is a minority, and as a matter of fact, this has been happening in the black community for many years. We have what's called playing the black card. You confront me for something, I'm pulling the black card. That means, oh, you're only doing this because I'm black. And, and, and instantly you stop. But now we are playing the woman card. We are playing the minority card. We are playing the oppressed card. But again, we don't want absolute truth. Why? Because it's offensive and it implies guilt so we avoid it but but by the way what was the result of Jesus calling this woman out John 439 many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the 
this woman's testimony. She, she was glad to see the Messiah, and she, she went and told, and many believed in Jesus because of this. She was confronted in her sin. And only once we are confronted in our sin do, do we find a Savior there to save us. Dear friends, the, the, the gospel truth hurts, it stings, it offends. But it is the only way for people to be changed. But here's where, what we are seeing. Churches today are becoming more and more watered down and liberal, increasingly compromising. Churches that once stood strong and, and fought against liberalism now embracing it. Professing Christians and, and churches now embracing homosexuality. So-called reformed churches. And even churches who, who at the moment are still standing strong against LBGTQ have fallen prey to wokeness in other areas. Gladly embracing critical race theory and, and other godless philosophies. Refusing to condemn these things. Why? Because we don't want to offend people with the truth. Dear friends, you better believe that Peter and John knew the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection from the dead. And what are they preaching? The resurrection of Christ from the dead. They're not preaching that purposefully to offend them. They're preaching it because it is true, but they're not being quiet simply because they know it will be offensive. Dear friends, if the apostles had the same mindset of many churches and, and Christians today, that the church would have never grown. We, we would never be here. Do, do we realize that? And there would be no Christian influence. Why? Because a phony, watered-down gospel that does not offend sinners also cannot save sinners. Do we understand that? When we dull the sharp edges of the gospel and water it down to make it more palatable, we are removing the power. And I want you to think about this. That this has some serious implications. Difference, you and I are the fruit of men and women refusing to compromise the gospel. Do, do we recognize that? That none of us would have ever been saved if there were not people willing to risk their neck in order to preach the gospel faithfully. I think it was the, the church father, Tertullian, who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. These men were faithful to the end. Faithful with the gospel, no matter who it offends, no matter what the consequences are. Why? Because this is the only transforming truth. And not only that, but these men took the gospel and applied it to every area of their lives and created a culture in which Christians could thrive. If you don't understand that you're living in a culture that has been influenced by Christianity, simply go to another. 
listening to a sermon not too long ago by Vody Bauckham. And he was talking about how when he went to Zambia, it really struck him the great amount of Christian influence in America. That, that, that Christianity has influenced our culture more than we could imagine. When, when he had this heart problem in Zambia, guess where he had to come? Back to America. Why? Because the lack of Christian influence there meant no doctors, no surgeons, no good hospitals. That was all Christian influence. But dear friends, when we are not faithful with the gospel, when we are not faithful with, with taking the gospel to the culture, what are we leaving for the generations to come? I mean, I mean, thank God that we had men who were willing to do this like the apostles. They were willing to be ridiculed, willing to even be persecuted for the sake of the gospel. But dear friends, if we don't have a vision for this, what kind of world are we leaving for our children and grandchildren and for generations to come? God forbid that we say, let's abandon ship and let our children and grandchildren deal with the consequences. But dear friends, if we are not faithful with the gospel here and now, there will be generational consequences. Do we recognize that? Because once again, what, what we are seeing in our culture today, the, the prevalence of, of the LBGTQ agenda, this is not something that happened overnight. This was generation after generation of men not being faithful with the Great Commission, not being faithful with building Christian culture. And so here you and I stand today. And what are we going to do with the gospel? Are we going to preach a message that is offensive to our world, but that, but that has heart-transforming and culture-transforming power? Or are we going to compromise so that we don't offend people? Because there are great implications to both. But a third reason why the leaders were irritated by the gospel is that they viewed the teaching of Jesus as a threat to their peace and lifestyle. We notice this in John chapter 11. We read, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. They believed in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them, what Jesus had done. So the chief priests, who are Sadducees, and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. MacArthur notes the Sadducees were mostly aristocratic, wealthy landowners. To protect their political position and wealth, they firmly opposed any overt opposition to Rome. In other words, they saw Jesus' teaching as a threat. And it was actually a misunderstanding. They, they thought that Jesus was trying to overthrow the Roman government. That's not what he was doing. But, but this is what they believed because they didn't believe in any spiritual life. What, what, he's, what the Messiah is here to do, he must be doing here and now. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. He is a threat. So, so what do they do in order to keep the peace? 
They desire to put Christ to death. And John tells us in chapter 11, verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Why do they want to put him to death? Because he's jeopardizing our peace and our lifestyles. Now this greatly applies to churches and Christians today. Annoyance of gospel proclamation. And in this case, mostly from professing Christians. Keep the peace at all costs. We can have good and comfortable lives here if we simply keep the peace, tone down our message. Can't we just be good Americans and watch baseball and grill hot dogs and live comfy and cozy and, and, and never have any type of strife if we just don't take the gospel out to the world? Dear friends, I think we're seeing the fruit of that. The fruit of that is that eventually they come into your church. We don't fight battles in a culture. We don't, we don't try to, to engage in, in the battles of our culture. And then, because we don't do that, they come into our church and attack us here. But dear friends, we can have good and, and comfortable lives if we simply don't make our religion public. Is this not a temptation? Don't anger the government with our religion. Don't poke the bear. Do you, do you realize what you are doing? Don't poke the bear. Don't anger the LGBTQ mob. Don't anger them with your truth. Leave them alone. Let them be. But as Pastor Mark mentioned this morning, that's not the loving thing to do. It's interesting, actually. If you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, we are told that there was both old and young there. These perverted men are trying to break into Lot's house in order to rape the, the two angels who are men who came to visit. And they're groping for the door. Even when they are struck with blindness, they are so perverted that they continue trying to get in the house and they're blind. And we are told both old and young are there. What does that mean? It wasn't about acceptance. The, the homosexuals in that and, and Sodom and Gomorrah was not just saying, you know, just let us do what we want to do privately and just accept us and tolerate us. No, they were evangelistic with it. This is how you get a situation where young boys are identifying as LBGTQ. They did not think of that themselves. They are being discipled. They are being evangelized. And that is what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. But guess what? Those young boys were killed by fire and brimstone just like those men. Do we recognize that? Those men in their perversion, evangelizing these, these children in their perversion, caused fire and brimstone to be rained down on everyone in the city, and they all died. You can't find a greater parallel than our country. We see these videos online of, 
of little boys and girls at pride festivals dressed like prostitutes. They don't think of these things on their own. They don't have a sexual preference yet. They're not even thinking about that. They're being evangelized, discipled, being told this is what you are. And the loving thing is not to say don't poke the bear. The loving thing is to confront them with an offensive gospel that has power to save and to change hearts. That is the loving thing to do. Do do we desire peace and comfort and lifestyle over the souls and and lives of of men, women, and children? Like the Sadducees, many churches look at preaching the gospel in our culture as extremists who are jeopardizing their peace and comfort. Stop going out. You're giving our church a bad name. Jeremy, stop going to the abortion clinic. Everybody's going to think this church is extreme. This is how we think. Those Christians who who would go to a a pride festival and, and, and preach the gospel there, they are crazy. There's something wrong with them. They are poking the bear, and they are giving us a bad reputation and a bad name. We don't like it. Let those people alone. Leave them alone. We are ashamed of those who do this. Different, can I, can I confess that that has been me? To, to be in a, in a crowded place full of people and to see a man preaching the gospel and I just want to say, oh man, this is embarrassing. I, I've been there before, if I'm being honest. But then you think of men like Whitfield. Standing upon his makeshift platform, preaching the gospel, and it's an embarrassing thing. People are hurling things at him, throwing dead cats at him, throwing tomatoes at him, throwing blood at him, trying to to hit him, trying to, to knock him down. But guess what? People are being converted in masses. I would... Imagine that many of us would have been ashamed to walk with the Apostle Paul. A man who, like I said earlier, often caused riots. A man who, who's standing in Athens and, 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 and he sees the, that the nation, the city, is giving to idolatry and it, and it, and it disturbs him and makes him sick. So he begins to to share the gospel with him. And oftentimes he's thrown out of the city. Maybe stoned. Maybe there's a riot. This man is a troublemaker. How, How many of us would be ashamed to be around him? But the Apostle Paul was being faithful. Dear friends, if John the Baptist thought the way that many of us think, he would have never lost his head. He lost his head because he was not interested in peace that was built upon a refusal to confront sin with the gospel. He wasn't being unloving. 
He's confronting the magistrate there because he loves them. They are in sin. He desires for them to do what is right, to to understand that they need a Savior to turn from their wickedness. This was the, the loving thing to do. He poked the bear and he lost his head. And that's the consequence sometimes. But as we see, the gospel cannot be stopped. Dear friends, people today as in every generation, are irritated when the gospel is faithfully preached. No one has ever just loved to to hear the gospel. It it always either saved people or or would turn them away from it. We can think of John Wesley being thrown out of churches, most of the churches in England, and he wasn't even a Calvinist. Just a simple preaching of the gospel. You're not allowed here anymore. We will literally physically throw you out. We will not tolerate this. And his contemporary, again, George Whitfield, who I just mentioned, that that multitudes are being saved during the the Great Awakening. But but still, people did not want to hear the gospel. And and we can think of the martyrs who, who died for faithfully proclaiming the truth. So just like the apostles faced, when we faithfully proclaim the gospel today, people are going to be greatly annoyed. Annoyed because the gospel confronts their wrong and false views. Annoyed because it confronts people in their sins. And some annoyed simply because it's confrontational. So because of this irritation, what happens? The leaders arrest Peter and John, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. In other words, the court is closed, so we will book you in jail until tomorrow. Dear friends, you and I are in a very similar situation. Here in Acts 4, the, the, the early church is experiencing persecution, the threats of persecution for, for the very first time. And in many ways, with the increasing secularization of our culture, we are seeing the church in America beginning to experience persecution, or at least the threats of persecution, for for the very first time. Again, we have had it relatively easy here. But this tension, dear friends, is growing. Look around you. Pretty soon, you are no longer going to be allowed to be a nominal Christian. You are either going to be a, a serious Christian or you are going to renounce your faith because guess what? Calling yourself a Christian will have consequences and you are not going to want to do that because it's not going to get you into any social clubs. But dear friends, before anyone gets discouraged or fearful or anxious, I want you to realize this is not a doom and gloom message. This message is meant to give us hope and and excitement and dare I even say exhilaration. How so? Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel and speaking with the people. Did they shut down Did did that stop anything? 
Yes, they're persecuted. They, they're arrested. They are in jail now. But, but what is the very next thing Luke tells us? But many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Wow. Not long ago at Pentecost, the church was at 3,000. Now we are told that the church is, is at 5,000, and that's only men. So they're not even counting the, the women and children, so there are possibly thousands more. And there's several things I want to note about this in closing. Number one, as I just said, persecution did not stop the church. As the apostles begin to, to be persecuted, not only does the church not die, but it grows rapidly. Sometimes I feel like this is almost God's sense of humor. The, the more you try to persecute the church, the more it purifies the church and the church grows and becomes stronger. It's almost like God's showing people, I'm actually sovereign. It's amazing. From the very inception of the church, people are trying to kill it. And here we are 2,000 years later in a thriving church with the same people, the same threats. We're going we're gonna to stop your religion. Don't you people read history? Nobody has ever been able to do that and nobody will ever be able to do that. But dear friends, Peter and John are now in jail, but, but multitudes are converted. And it's also interesting to note that, that this is the last time we hear a count. Because after this, the church is growing so rapidly that, that, that we can't even keep count anymore. The, the last number we have of the Jerusalem church is 5,000 men. But if, if, we, if we go forward in the book of Acts, what do we see? Acts chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever... Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Chapter 16, verse 5. So the church the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. The persecution has increased and the church grows like never before. What was the cause of this growth? Was it seeker sensitivity? Was it relevance? To culture. No, Paul tells us what the, what, what the secret was to this growth. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. They arrest Peter and John, but it's too late. The, the power has gone out. The deed is done. 
They, they try to shut it down, but, it, but it's too late. Multitudes are saved, and this happens over and over and over again. But dear friends, let me ask you a question. Has something changed? Is the gospel no longer the, the power of God to salvation? Nowhere does my Bible say it's not. This type of growth that we see here in, in the book of Acts, should, should we expect this today? If we are being faithful in the Great Commission, why not? We are told that the power is in the gospel. And obviously we know it's because God is powerful and he uses the gospel to save. But, but when we see the, this gospel message that's so powerful here in the book of Acts that thousands are being converted at a time, we should not say that was back then. It's different now. Different, nothing has changed. The gospel is still the power of God to salvation. But, but going back to what I said earlier, what would have happened if Peter and John had toned down their message to not offend the Pharisees, or, or the Sadducees rather? What would have happened? Those men would not have been converted. Because they would not have been converted by a false gospel. You think of the implications of that. Souls were saved. Because these men were willing to preach the truth even though they knew it was offensive and they knew it could cause their freedom. And as a result, souls are saved. But, but why even do it if you're going to water it down? Why even do it at that point in time? It, all it does is make people hate you and it doesn't save anyone. But what a great comfort for us that no matter what the world does and says, no matter how much they, they hate Christianity, no matter how severe they try to persecute us, the gospel remains the power of God to salvation. So as we're going to see as we go throughout this chapter, they, they arrest them, they, they put them on trial as it were, and they use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. And they are told, don't you speak in this name. And he tells them, should we obey you or God? And they pray for boldness. I can't, I can't wait to get to this part of this text. They, they, they know they're going to be persecuted. They are threatened. And they don't go and pray for safety and comfort. They pray for boldness. Dear friends, we look around us and we say, if we take the gospel to our culture, to Holland, to Zealand, they're going to hate us. They're going to call us mean. Dear friends, what do we pray for? It's not wrong to pray for safety. But is safety our idol? Is comfort our idol? Or do we pray that no matter what, that we would be faithful to the gospel? And so we pray for, for boldness in doing that. 
So we can sit in jail cells, dear friends. And guess what? They're in a prison with no books, nothing there. We, 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 we know of a message that is heart-transforming, culture-transforming, so that no matter what they do with us, we, we, we have a gospel that is powerful. Bring us into your courtroom, and we'll, we'll have a, an opportunity to preach the gospel to you that we would not have had before. Arrest us. Well, you get to hear the gospel in the police car now. This is how the disciples, the apostles, thought. Put us in jail, and we're going to turn it into a Christian jail. We have a message that is powerful. But dear friends, we need to believe this. And, and, and this is now is not the time to, to back down. When we see things getting worse, that does not mean it is time to back down. It means it is, in time, it is time to engage the culture with a message that can change it. And yes, it is going to be offensive. But dear friends, it is powerful. And perhaps there are some here today who don't know Christ. And you, you hear that this, this gospel message is powerful. This gospel had the power to save you as well. If you don't know Christ, turn to him this very day. This message can, can save your soul. This man whom, whom, who, who the apostles here accused of, of crucifying, he, he was crucified for sins. But he didn't stay in the grave. We read he was raised for our justification. This was the, the evidence that God had accepted that sacrifice so that if we confess our sins, if we turn from our sins, repent of our sins, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. And that can be you this very day. Let us remember, dear friends, we need to love people even when they think it's annoying. How often is a child annoyed by a spanking? Do we do it anyways? I hope so. Of course, it's, it's annoying to be called a sinner, to be shown your sin, to be told that if you continue in your lifestyle... It will mean eternity in hell, experiencing the wrath of God. Of course, this is annoying, but, but if we love people, we will do it. We will share this message. Let, let us not pretend that we are being loving by being quiet. Let, let us not pretend we're being loving to our community by keeping a peaceful community. Let us be loving by taking the heart-transforming, culture-transforming message to the masses. Let us pray. Dear God, we are grateful that these things have been recorded for us. How lost would we be without your word? Father, we thank you that we can go to your word and read of a situation that is that is similar to ours, people who hate you, persecuting your church, 
at least threatening to do so. And we thank you of the the example that, that when the gospel is faithfully preached, even though it offends some, it saves others. Father, may we be more concerned about lost souls being saved than we are with people being upset with us. May we be more concerned with with twisting the gospel and and misrepresenting you than we would be with with, um, offending people. That we would rather offend than to change your very word. And oh God, help us to see that if we try to change the gospel, if we try to water it down, if we try to, to cut off the sharp edges, we are removing the power. For there's no power in a false gospel. But Lord, help us to love our neighbors, to love our co-workers, to love our children, to love those in the, in the public square, to love our government, to love the LBGT community, to love everyone around us enough to be willing to even be persecuted, to share the loving gospel with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.